Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Nolcast. So, Bud got uh, a lot of listener questions that we're going to get to tonight. We're kind of kind of touch and go last week, and and ultimately my internet ended up just going. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, wrapping that one up on uh, behalf of uh, myself and and for the listeners. And we will uh, jump back into our podcast tonight. Like I said, got a lot of listener questions. Some. Uh, that are new for this week, some that we had to hold over uh, from last week, and uh, we'll just start it off from here. As always, thank our friends in New Iberia, Louisiana, Louisiana Hot Sauce, three simple ingredients, one fantastic product, and uh, I did recently move. <clears throat> I was kind of doing the whole new grocery store walk around, bud, and uh, they carry the Louisiana Hot Hotter Hot Sauce, and that is a, uh, that's strong. It is, it's not, it's still not like, you know, burn your tongue type but it is uh if you want to kick it up a little bit keep an eye out for that find it on the internet it is a uh you know dollar 39 well spent that is that is an excellent use of your money uh so before we get to listener questions tonight uh, i wanted to address the transfer portal rankings uh, i got to write the uh the article on which teams did the best and uh was happy to name the Knowles uh, one of the what five or six winners uh that i named i basically used a formula that gauged uh, quality and quantity with obviously since there's a million kids in the transfer portal and only 18 four-star or better rated players um, needing to weight quality a little bit higher than quantity in, in naming the top teams. But uh, Florida state did make it and yeah, talk some guys over there and they're like, yeah, it's kind of about what we thought, right? We wanted to get a lot of experienced college players because that's what we believe this roster needs help-wise. And uh, they seem to be pretty happy with what they got in the portal and they may not be done. So with that, uh, I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on the transfer rankings coming out. Mackenzie Milton, the only four-star. Uh, but FSU did have a whole lot of guys in the top 50 and uh, even more in the top 75, which is how they made uh, the top transfer rankings uh, list. So some questions here, man. Uh, most of these come from our Patreon members, patreon.com slash Nolcast. Appreciate you guys supporting the show. Of course, asking a question doesn't guarantee you get on the show, but uh, it certainly gets you to the front of the list as long as it's a question that we want to answer and we think it'll actually make for a good show. Let's leave it off here with Austin. This is an interesting one that, that he submitted this afternoon to us. He says, hopefully this question slash scenario makes sense to you both. With leadership set to turnover, President slash AD in the coming future. Do you think, due to the short exit of Willie Taggart and the large buyout that will be paid to the next president slash AD, uh, will be more than likely to come internally? My reasoning on this is FSU can't afford to fire Norvell. Therefore, they would need a leadership that fully believes in him as the guy. Along that line, would Coburn be a potential option for president? I'll let you have first crack on this. What, what do you think? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't know uh, Coburn. I don't know anybody around him. This is pure speculation. I think Coburn uh, looked at this as maybe like an 18-month caretaker project. All of a sudden, it's turned into a ridiculous hands-on uh, period where he wasn't maybe expecting it. Uh, by all accounts, Coburn has turned in an effort that is uh, for nobody that has any kind of experience as an athletic director uh, that he's done pretty damn well. I would be shocked uh, to see him involved in the president's search. Uh, if there was to be an alternative, uh, excuse me, if there was to be a interior hiring, uh, you may, and I, trust me, I have asked people about this and their, their response has been, well, yeah, you know, that's something that could make sense down the road, but it's not anything that there's a formal plan for. 
I mean, you may, you may well have already hired your athletic director. That wouldn't shock me. Uh, and, and who's running your booster group. Uh, again, I don't know that for sure, but if you were looking for an internal hire, I would think you'd see it at AD before you see it at president. I, I would agree with that. I, I just don't think the football coach has that big of a bearing on what you're going to do with, with, with the president. Like it, it's such a bigger hire in the actual scheme of, of things. So I, I, I understand Austin's sentiment here, but I just, I don't think that that's going to like factor heavily into the hire. With that in mind, I think you probably are going to tell the next president, hey, uh, Michael Alford, if it is him to you know, take over as AD, he's going to run athletics and get out of the way, right? Like, like we, we, we don't really need your help with this that much. We, we don't need you to be a TK or one of the presidents who has also sort of wanted to, you know, to play athletic director, uh, which with both the good and the bad, you know, that comes with that. Patrick gives us our next question. Patrick, right. Hey guys, scheduled to close with Shannon and his team next week. Uh, these guys are really the best. And I'm looking forward to my t-shirt. <laughs> Thanks for recommending them. I have a couple of questions. First, how much have you grown as a college basketball fan over the past five years? Second, this is primary for Ingram. Uh, I find myself on the optimistic side of things every year around this time, only to find my dis- myself disappointed once the season gets underway. So why haven't we learned from our past mistakes? What specifically makes us so optimistic? I'm uh, defining six or seven wins as optimistic for this season. Uh, what's different about this year? There's always some hope of fandom, right? I, I think that there will be some pushback. I, I think a lot of people will tell you that six wins is not very optimistic, right? If you were running a straight computer model that just basically took the last couple of years results in and then factored in recruiting rankings, I, I think that that would probably spit out a number that was less than uh, less than six wins. So maybe compared to just a, a very blind computer model, which there are very good ones out there, and on the whole, they're going to beat they're going to beat humans at, proje- at projecting. You know, from that perspective, I, I can see why why Patrick would, would label six win expectation as optimistic. But I, I would also note that I I don't think that maybe that projection is taking into account things like improved chemistry, actually having a some semblance of an offseason to work together, all, all those things that that really do seem to matter. Uh, at least in my opinion they do. I don't think like I don't think we have the reputation of being optimistic at all. Uh, if you just based on some of the feedback we get on social media, most people think we're fairly pessimistic and and you know like the feedback we got for the episode where we discussed how FSU needs to make sure that it's recruiting the kind of kid who's actually going to sign if you go you know five and seven six and six seven and five a lot of people didn't like that but yet I know people in the program who said that's exactly what we need to be doing because you know like this team has okay players but they're not great I, I don't know like do you think we're too optimistic oh no no I'm <laughs> I don't think that Uh, And I don't look, I mean, hope springs eternal, particularly in sports fans. If you can't be optimistic, then that's a tough existence. Right. Um, And it doesn't mean that. I mean, look, there's a there's a difference between optimistic and the idea that the plan that the um, structure is starting to be put into place. There's a greater foundation surrounding this program than there has been in seven or eight years um, that, you know, you can win seven games this year build a class that's going to give you a chance to really make a big jump forward. And then there's the guy that looks at the schedule and says well, nine and three at a minimum or something like that. Right. I mean, there's, there's a difference between uh, kind of a 
grounded idea as to where the program's going and maybe an optimistic idea as to what's in front of it. And then there's the guy that's like, oh, well, we're going to beat Miami, Florida. And, uh, you know, I can see us drop into Clemson, Notre Dame or something like that. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's lunacy and then there's the optimism of a fan. And uh, I wouldn't classify that necessarily as a mistake. That's just kind of the, the fan experience to an extent. So, Ingram, let's just humor Patrick here and and say that, look, maybe six or seven wins is optimistic. I, I think seven might actually be a little bit optimistic. What are the specific things that would lead you to be optimistic? For me, I do think that the chemistry of it, the second year and really first full year in Mike Norvell's system, I think that's going to pay dividends. And I know that you're probably going to have, what, six new starters? just coming from the transfer market. So like those guys are, are not going to have a, a full year in Norvell's system, but they've all been in college. They, they, they all know how to show up, how, how to lift weights, how to eat, that, that type of stuff. Like they're not having to learn how to be a college football player. They're just having to learn Mike Norvell's system or Adam Fuller's system, depending on you know what side of the ball they play. So I, I would say the, the cohesiveness of, of the team is, is a pretty big deal. Like the, the second year bump in a coaching thing, typically... It's it's kind of a media narrative. Doesn't always hold true, uh, but but there is something to it. Real quickly, have we become basketball fans more over the last five years? Uh, I've been a pretty big basketball fan throughout my existence, and I've certainly enjoyed kind of this ten year run that uh, Florida State's been on. But I, I've been a, a fairly large basketball fan, and uh, I remember I, <laughs> I remember placing a call about about ten years ago or so, and thinking that hey, there's some things in place where the basketball team might really have a a nice shot here. I didn't necessarily know that they were going to have the decade that they've had or turn into the program that they have over the last three years. But uh, no, I mean, I remember being a little lunatic, 13 years old or so watching the uh, watching Florida state make that a final four run in the NIT with that team. And basketball has always been something I've really enjoyed. Absolutely. All right. Uh, So let's go ahead and take our next question, which comes from Chris. Chris writes, you and Bud rightly discussed all the difficulties hip issues had due to firing Willie Taggart and then Im- immediately getting hit with the 2020 COVID situation. However, I was wondering if the dismissal of the APR requirements due to COVID and super seniors may be a silver lining since it, since it enabled Norvell to cut even more dead weight off this roster and flip the culture sooner. In short, did COVID allow Norvell to get rid of players without fear of an APR issue? I would propose the idea, Bud, here, and you can slap this out of, uh, of reality if, if you think it needs to be. Um, I think that we may be able to just graduate concerns about APR at this point. I mean, both because uh, of what's happened in the last year and then um, and some of the COVID changes that have had to been made. But, I mean, Florida State has taken care of its, uh, you know, of, of its, of its, uh, home turf when it comes to academics over the last year. And if there was anything that Willie did uh, well and should be commended for, he, he certainly ch- changed that direction. Uh, you know, APR is really only a massive concern if you are like the worst program in the country and Florida state has given itself um, a decent amount of, uh, you know, it's had a nice snapback to where maybe that's a subject matter where two to three years ago, I think we needed to be exceptionally concerned about and fan base needed to have in their back of the mind all the time. I think that really we may be able to just kind of leave that subject matter behind at this point. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think that you have an issue here where I, I it, it may come back, but I do not think the NCAA is going to deal with it in, in the same way, right? Like, I, I think they'll try to rewrite the formula, play it differently somehow. So I, I would expect that this will be a different thing going forward, ultimately. And, and Florida State is, is not in the academic situation that it was uh, whatsoever. So I, I think regardless of the formula or structure that uh, for the here and now, the APR is not something necessarily that the fan base needs to be uh, ultra concerned with. All right. Uh, who do we have next? Before we get to our next question here, bud, want to thank our friend Matt Lewis and the team at Congruity. Congruity is experiencing your business optimized, highly customized HR solutions design to enhance your brand, save time, save money, and reduce business risk. We're fortunate enough to work with Matt. Would encourage you to just give him a call, spend 10, 15 minutes, get a feel if it is a good fit for you. He can be reached at 844-247-4100 or Knowles at congruityhr.com. That's N-O-L-E-S at congruityhr.com. So Josh chimes in. He says, this comes with the caveat that improvement needs to be shown on the field, but given how the 2022 and 2023 recruiting is going, is it safe to say that our concerns of Norvell and staff as recruiters are for the most part alleviated? Hmm. Well, I think my main concerns with, with this staff recruiting wise had to do with the circumstances surrounding the, the, the COVID situation and what we know is sort of the new coach penalty in the early signing period era. I mean, w- look, we just know for a fact that it's very hard to come in as a new coach in, unless you're an internal promotion like a Cristobal, a Lincoln Riley, or um, you know, like, like a Ryan Day type at Ohio State. And typically those guys are are being promoted when somebody retires or when somebody moves on for, you know, for, for promotion because you don't typically hire internally if uh, if your program is going in the wrong direction. So that wasn't really the option for, for Florida State uh, at, at the time they hired Norvell. The thing is, like the COVID thing is still going around and the dead period is still extended and I don't think it's going to be lifted anytime soon. So that, that makes it tough. Uh, I think that it's promising the start that Florida State is off to, but I, I'm just not sure how well they'll do Let's see how the season goes, right? I mean, like I, I write this this piece every single summer called Staying Power. And I take a look at, at the current recruiting standings in the summer, and I'll do it again this year in, in May or June. And fans really kind of get their ass over their shoulder about it because they, uh, can, can you say that still? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> you allowed to say that? I think so. I think so. The thing is, like, you need to take a look at, okay, what, are they this high in the rankings due to quantity, due to quality, due to some factors uh, you know, combined? What is the season they're likely to have, et cetera? And then how good are recruiting classes typically based on, on what your record is and how many years you've been in the program, what you're selling, et cetera? I, I think this staff has some pretty damn good recruiters on it. I think Alex Atkins is a really good recruiter. I think Kenny, Kenny Dillingham. Is a, is a good recruiter. I think John Petrus actually is a pretty good recruiter. And look, we said that we said that at the time about him because we knew he did a nice job at some of his previous stops. When, when he was hired, we, we mentioned that he was a, a, a good recruiter. The issue is just establishing relationships with these guys, which I think hiring Ryan Barto 
makes a whole lot of sense, right? Um, because he's maybe a, a way to jumpstart some of those relationships, especially because you don't know, you know what, what if the dead period gets extended even more? What, what if you don't get to have summer camps? I mean, then you're talking, it's been a really long time since you've been able to, to see any of these kids in person. For any of these staffs, if you ever even have, you know, it's, as a staff yourself, when we know you have it. So ultimately, the answer to Josh's question, I would say, I think things are, are trending in the right direction in recruiting. I'm not really making any judgments based on the 2023. I'm not totally sure how good these kids are. I've not seen any of their 2023 commits in person with the exception of Lamont Great Jr., who I think is a good take for them. Uh, but like, who knows? We, we heard rumors that some other guys were, were, were going to commit in, in the 2023 class and then they ended up not committing. So I wonder if like maybe they were told, hey, like, hold off. We've never seen you in person and we like your film, but you know, <laughs> we, we don't know if, you, if we like you that much. But they, they have some momentum right now. Uh, I think they're in a good spot. It's just, we, look, we got to see how, how this is going to go with the actual season. All right. One thing that I like seeing every morning is all these emails from Shannon in our inbox, man. And uh, shout out, by the way, to a longtime listener. We have, we have, I feel like we can't do shout outs to everybody because it would take a, a really, really long time. Uh, but uh, Chris, who is a longtime follower of ours on Twitter and supporter of the show, and Bethany, they have a closing. So congrats to them. Orlando couple and uh, really, really awesome. 844-FSU-LOAN, 844-FSU-LOAN is the number you want to call to get hooked up with the legendary team. Guys, there that's that's you got to call. Awesome rates, awesome customer service. We're we're, we're closing in on 150 null cast loans to them. That's that's tremendous and like every time I talk to Shannon he's like we we got this one in the in the pipeline. We got this one. This one's going to close next week and I'm I'm super excited about it. It's he's just <laughs> it's it's so much volume. It's crazy. Yeah. It's really crazy. It's great. Uh, been a great pairing. I uh, I ordered uh, bulk in the boxes today uh, because we're sending out so much shirts. So uh, it's been a fantastic pairing, and there's a reason why as many people have have chosen to do it as they have. And certainly encourage you guys to reach out to to Shannon and just uh, take the temperature of of uh, you know what he could possibly do for you. Full disclosure: we actually recorded this late this evening because we were debating on. Uh, whether Custom Inc., the t-shirt provider, had switched up the base color of the shirts. And then we, we ultimately discovered they had not uh, because we were sending out so many shirts uh, you know, to our, our no-cast loan customers that, uh, yeah, we have to order more shirts. So that's a good problem to have. We really appreciate you guys supporting them. Let's go, uh, let's go Michael here. He writes, uh, hey guys, uh, thanks for giving us something to look forward to during this basketball only time of year. And thanks to all the sponsors for making it possible. Good transition there. I'm looking for your thoughts on the A.J. Duffy recruitment. With Duffy being a West Coast guy, my concern is that he commits to our Knowles early, leading to a Nico decommitment and ultimately choosing Oregon or Arizona State in the end. I don't know if I'm just just scarred uh, or scared. I think he means scarred, but it could be scared. Uh, from the Sam Howell slash Luke Altmaier late flips from the past couple of years, or if this is something the staff really needs to be leery of. This is actually a pretty pretty insightful question, I think, from, from Michael, because it paints a picture which... Uh, certainly could happen, right? If Nico were to see himself as the number two quarterback in this class, and I, I don't know, I've never met the kid in person, so I don't know what his self-esteem is like or what his opinion of his game is. Most QBs are pretty high on themselves, so I'm guessing that he thinks you know, he's pretty good. 
Uh, but if, if FSU was to get AJ Duffy, and, and we covered in the last episode how, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that think that top four for AJ Duffy may not include the number one team on his list, right? Ingram is currently highlighting a part of the question in our doc, and I'm not sure if I'm missing something here. No, you're not. You're not. That's, that's just me being dumb. Gosh. No, no. It, it's, uh, it's not dumb. I was just like, wait, is this is a great way to like signal to me that I've missed part of this question. Uh, I'm of the opinion that you're probably not going to be able to sign like two four stars or better quarterbacks in this class, just given what the program has looked like recently. Maybe I'll be wrong on that. Maybe Nico won't stay a four star. Maybe he'll be a three star. Who knows? Uh, you know, some of his passing numbers when when he got to Arizona were not too good. Some of them were were okay. I think a lot of it will depend on how he looks in the summer camp circuit and, and how he looks as a senior. If you can pull Duffy, especially if you don't think Arizona State's favorite, and I, I do think Arizona State's the favorite right now, um, even though they, they weren't in his top four, I'm sure that's something like the staff would would kind of play through the, the potential scenarios. But I don't think it's something that you really need to be worrying about too much. If he goes ahead and commits to you, you, you need to basically take it at face value unless you think he's just trying to reserve a spot, which I, I don't think he's trying to do. Always love it when I look in either the uh, Patreon responses or the email inbox and see something from Kesna. Uh, his first question is, with Gus taking over at UCF, he brings a good resume to one of the best, uh, to one of the three best G5 jobs. I know Gus wasn't the best recruiter at Auburn, but given the competition against which he will be recruiting, do you see Gus's presence at UCF slowing down our rebuild because at this stage, our rebuild, we are primarily recruiting against the likes of UCF, USF, et cetera, uh, not necessarily Miami, Florida, Clemson, uh, Georgia, et cetera. Um, but what do you think the impact on Gus going to USF, uh, UCF could ultimately be for Florida State? Yeah. like I, I First of all, I think Keston's one of our most consistently excellent questioners, and he sent seven today. Uh, but, but, I, but like this one, actually, I don't think is, I don't think this one's on the money, but I, I, I put it in the doc because I thought it was good because if Kessler thinks this, maybe others do as well. And so I wanted to bring this up. UCF does not recruit against Florida State at all. FSU does not recruit against UCF. They swim in different pools of, of recruited talent overall, right? That's not to say that like, they would never offer the same kid, but it's very rare that they ever go down to the like down to the wire to battle for a player. If Gus Malzahn is to have success at, at UCF, and I think he probably will, he needs to basically, and I was having a discussion with somebody who works at UCF yesterday about this. He needs to do a really good job landing the kids in that sort of 50 to 125 range in the state of Florida. That means beating out schools like Syracuse, Purdue, Maybe if like Wisconsin's trying to offer the kid a, a gray shirt or something like that and, and, and wants, wants them to wait, basically beating some lower level P5 schools in the ACC and Big Ten that come into the state of Florida and, and, and take kids, those are the type of kids that you need to be able to get at UCF, assuming that you actually want them. Uh, when's the last time that UCF or USF beat out FSU or Florida, or Miami for a kid they actually offered and legitimately wanted. Not not the nonsense where they put the hat on the table and they're like, oh, I've got an offer. And the schools told the kid for months, hey, we don't have room for you, right? Like, legitimately beat him out. I, I, 
it's been a long, long time. There was a there was a DB. Gosh, I, I want to say his name was Mitchell back in the day that, that ended up picking USF, but that might have been like 2011 ish. I mean, it's been a long, long time. So I, I really don't think you need to worry about this at all. Last year, U, UCF signed one player from Florida in the top 125 in the state. UCF needs to out-recruit USF in the state before it takes on FSU. That's just that that's not even on my radar as a potential concern right now. Fair enough. Uh, Kessa's other question that we included tonight is given the importance of the Tri-County area, Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, in top-level recruiting and the staff's lack of deep relationships in the area, is it highly likely this staff can pull off a rebuild without recruiting uh, this talent-rich uh, area of the Tri-County? No, it's certainly not highly likely that they can pull it off if they're not able to uh, to recruit that area, which is why I, I think some of the recent staff hires, including Bartow, w- will be a help. I mean, this is a guy who who lived down there, like he he was in Fort Lottie, as he called it, and you know, I mean, like he's he knows everybody down there. That's kind of what you what you want, and that's what I think he'll be able to bring them. It doesn't mean you're going to win all the battles down there. If Bama comes down and wants wants a top receiver. They're probably going to get him. Uh, but I think you'll have a stronger presence down there. Certainly Miami has done a really good job in its own backyard. It's been a much better team than you've been over the last few years. And it's expected to be a really good team again this year. But still, uh, look, Keston's right about this. You do need to recruit that area well. But I think they're, they're going to do better down there. That's been an area, too, where not being able to meet those coaches down there has, has been a problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I have a, a whole lot more to add. I mean, you're certainly going to have to have a, a network that exists throughout the state and be able to recruit South Georgia and some of the you know larger metro areas that we've always talked about. Uh, but yeah, if Florida State or really any program is operating at its peak efficiency, normally it coincides with a time in which they have a strong presence in, in uh, you know Broward, Dade, and, and maybe to a little bit of a lesser extent, Palm Beach. So uh, we'll be interested to watch how that develops. All right, uh, who do we have next? Okay, back to uh, some hypotheticals. Enjoyed this. Connor asked if the Florida, if, excuse me, if the ACC expands and adds Notre Dame, who would you pick as a realistic option for the 16th team? I would personally pick the University of Houston. They come with a good football and basketball tradition and give the conference a footprint in Texas. I could see good arguments being made for Cincinnati and West Virginia as well. Connor took mine. I was going to say Houston. I I think that's a pretty obvious one. Cincinnati is not a bad backup, but I'll, because I have a feeling you may pick Cincinnati here, uh, I I will go ahead and go with Houston. Houston is a very big school. It does have wealthy alumni. It has a desire to be good at football. Its president is on record as saying we fire coaches for going nine and three here, which ultimately was probably a little bit out over her skis when she made those comments, but. That's her prerogative, especially if you are backed by a billionaire who also happens to own the Houston Rockets and a whole lot of casinos, et cetera. Uh, So adding them to the league, I think, would be similar to adding Louisville to the league, right? It's a school that's had a lot of football success. They are fairly decent in, in other sports, and there's no real market conflict there, like if you were trying to add a USF or UCF or something like that. So Houston would be my pick, assuming that like they're coming from like not a school from an, another Power Five league. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting. You make the Louisville uh, reference there. I think it would be very similar. Some of the uh, 
academic blue bloods may have a little bit of a, a problem with with Houston being uh, added to that. But yeah, I, I would say Houston would be a fairly clear number one, and Cincinnati would be uh, number two for me. West Virginia is in a P five conference, but that's always you know I think I think the idea when West Virginia joined the the Big Ten or excuse me the Big Twelve is that there would be uh, more eastward expansion or, or some kind of natural rivalry that uh, never really kind of came to fruition. So wouldn't shock me to see if they didn't move around in time. I do want to take a second to thank our longtime supporter and OG sponsor, Madison Social, of course, Township as well. Matt and the guys over there do an awesome job. It's your spot to go in Tallahassee for food and drink. Like upscale sports pub is, is the way we've always described it. That, that continues to work for me. By the way, on Wednesdays, if you spend 30 bucks, ask your server, you get a free BLT dip. Their BLT dip there is absolutely outrageous. Hit them up. 30 bucks for, for two, not too bad. Get a free BLT dip, hard to beat. Absolutely. Yeah, no, whether it be the BLT dip or just the, you know, kind of experience enhancer that we always talk about. Good example of that is if you are in Tallahassee attending the Florida State basketball game tomorrow night, if you're wearing a Knowles, uh, any kind of Knowles gear, uh, I believe maybe just a shirt to be safe, uh, but your second drink is free. Again, uh, if you're wearing no gear between 6.30 and 8.30 uh, tomorrow, your second drink is free. So if you're going to the basketball game, keep them in the back of your mind, whether or not you're taking that up or any other offer. Uh, great people, great supporters of Florida State Athletic Experience, and uh, as Bud said, a uh, driving force behind the Creation of the Nolcast and uh, people that we've ever been so fortunate to have with us since day one. All right, Cass, let's get back into it. Who are we on here, John? Uh, no, uh, TJ. TJ says, to kind of bite off a question last week, what would you say are Florida State's five most important non-championship games in program history? Uh, Got to love the off-season content, right? <laughs> uh, appreciate the work that you guys do. No, TJ, this is a great question. Yeah, but I mean, I'll just let you take a crack at this. There's a couple that come to mind for me, uh, but this is a, you know, this is fun stuff. And as I read it, you're thinking of more. Doesn't necessarily have to be positive either. I mean, oh, yeah, losses actually, uh, they, they can be pretty important. Uh, so that's a good point, dude. Um, I'll just, you know, Bud and I have always had a little bit of a different opinion on bowl games and if they matter at all. I, I would say that the, you know, the Notre Dame and the USC game really come to mind for me as, as bowl games that mattered and the transformation of the program and and kind of allowing Jimbo both to sell success, getting internal buy-in. Uh, USC had, had, you know, lost in the SEC championship game, but still was a, you know, quality opponent. And that was at the time when the SEC was kind of at its peak of SEC-ness. And that was a real big win. And then the, you know, Notre Dame game was just such a, uh, kind of window as to what was to come and really kind of a, a physical level of buy-in guys playing with injuries guys playing uh, in, you know in a, a game that really didn't matter much at all um, but really given a whole lot to try to win that game so those those two immediately come to mind for me I, those are actually really good picks I, I, I think especially you know, in the recent history of the program the, those make a whole lot of sense I I'm actually going to go way back here. I, I have two, and I had a hard time separating these, so I almost want to group them together because one put FSU on the map, and then one was kind of like, whoa, uh, when 
like the next weekend, the whole nation was, was watching these guys. So the first one is Florida State's 18 to 14 win at Nebraska, which at the time was number three in the country. Nebraska, obviously a dominant national power historic program in 1980. I was not born. I think a decent chunk of our listeners were not born. Probably even a smaller chunk of our listeners remember this game. They go up there and they beat Nebraska 18 to 14 in Lincoln, right? Paul Porowski gets the sack. Gary Futch as, as the fumble recovery. And that was just kind of in Florida State. That would be almost like, like USF going and winning a huge road game. Uh, I don't know. Like remember 2007 when, when USF beat Auburn in Auburn and just the, the, the absolute craziness of that season. We had a, a two loss national champion. So to me, like that one, you can't really retrace the history of Florida State without looking at the 1980 game. But the thing is, the next week, they had to turn around and play a team that was also number three, dude, the Pitt Panthers. Now, people might say, Pitt, yeah, whatever. But for those of y'all who don't know, back in the day, Pitt was legit. Like, they were not just ranked highly because they were undefeated or whatever. They were really, really good. This was an ESPN game, nationally televised game. They put FSU on there. Obviously, you have Dan Marino. For Pittsburgh. Now we're starting to go with some names here, right? So Marino's a sophomore. Uh, this Pitt team was absolutely friggin' loaded. Look at this. The entire Pitt starting offensive line started in the NFL. Mark May, Russ Grimm, Ron Sams, Rob Feta, Jimbo Covert, all NFL starters. So that's pretty impressive. They had a guy named Dan Marino playing quarterback for them, as I mentioned. All of their defensive linemen also started in the NFL. You may have heard of some of these guys. Uh, Ricky Jackson and Hugh Green. Ever heard of Hugh Green? I mean, like, yeah, obviously. He's a decent defensive player back in his day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then three defensive backs for them started in the NFL and their fullback. And both of their starting receivers were NFL guys uh, as well. as They actually had 23 NFL starters uh, eventually go from that team that FSU played that day and seven first round picks. So this is kind of similar level of talent to, um, to the 2013 FSU team that they were playing. This was the only game, by the way, that Pitt would lose that year. And FSU got them. It was big time. They, they, they beat them 36 to 22. Just wild. I mean, they, they go, go, you can go back and, and, and read about this. Like that's that's a huge thing because okay, the whole nation noticed FSU beat Nebraska on the road in Lincoln. But then you get your ESPN game and you don't have the letdown. Bowden got these guys up. They played up to the challenge. They beat Dan Marino in a pit team that, you know, was very potentially the best team in the country that year. Yeah, that's that's pretty big. So those would be two on my list for sure. I think Ward to Dunn is is a no-doubter on this list. By the way, that 1980 defense, we don't have advanced stats for 1980 defense. If we did, I do think that that would be very much in the running for the best uh, the best defense of all time in Florida State history. Like I know we think think of 2013 as the gold standard, and it it should be at least for the seasons that we can actually measure. But I mean, if you look at the points allowed. Of that 1980 defense, 
zero to LSU, zero to Louisville, seven to East Carolina, nine to Miami. Wait, sorry, no, 10 to Miami, 14 to Nebraska, 22 to Pitt, seven to Boston College, three to Memphis State. Memphis used to be called Memphis State, by the way, if you guys are wondering. Uh, Two to Tulsa, so just safety. Uh, Seven to Virginia Tech, 13 to Florida, and then uh, 18 to Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl. And they held him under 300 yards. That was quarterback J.C. Watts, who was really, really good. So 7.7 points per game. Different scoring environment, obviously, back then. But uh, that was just an absolutely insane FSU defense there at the time. So the, the, that, those two plus, plus Ward to Dunn uh, would, uh, would, would be on mine. I also think if you want to go negative, there's a couple you can really sort of, of look at. There were some... Like losing the 97 game in Gainesville, that is, that's one that'll stick in your craw as far as being a negative, just because like you, you had a national championship caliber team that year and and you didn't cash it in. I also think 2018, the, the game against Virginia Tech, like that was a big one, right? I, I think that that, like that turned a whole lot of people off. And, and ultimately, you know, why did they fire Willie? Cause a lot, a lot of boosters weren't, weren't going to, you know, actually pay up on their pledges. Uh, we have done some <laughs> some podcasts uh, over the period of time that we've done this, bud, where I've felt ecstatic. I don't know that I've ever felt any lower than the podcast that we recorded at 310 in the morning or whatever it was uh, after the Virginia Tech game. I mean, that was as much of a gut punch. Uh, and I was in I was in the swamp in 97, and that was uh, that was tough for me to take as well. But that I don't know that I've ever walked out of a sporting event with a bigger kind of lack of disbelief as to what I just saw and what transpired, uh, particularly after all the optimism and the atmosphere and everything else that, uh, that that game had in the early phases of it. Um, just one more on the positive front, and I, I would, I would really rank this Georgia really Tech Florida State. Uh, it is one of the more influential games in program history, in my opinion. I'm not sure you have Ward to Dunn uh, the year following. If you don't have this game, it was the birth of – Fast break offense. It was really the the first time that Charlie Ward became Charlie Ward, the quarterback that we all think of uh, now. It was uh, kind of monumental in the program's uh, development and a game that I would certainly put uh, in my top five, if not maybe my top three. Can't argue with that, man. That that is a that was a fun question. Not, n- nice job there from TJ. Really appreciate that one. All right, so Austin asks us, hey, I, I know Bud has mentioned in previous episodes that the only area that the staff uh, was composed of non-first choice hires uh, was with, with some of the recruiting department hires. Uh, do you know if Bartow was on the short list for the first time around? Uh, also, what will comprise uh, his role in the staff? Hopefully, he knows where a quality left tackle is hiding. <laughs> uh, man, left tackle. That is... I don't think Ryan Bartow was their first choice because... I think they wanted to hire Ernie Sims. Obviously, Ernie Sims, a, a Florida State legend who's been in the coaching game, but also uh, he wanted to be a coach. We, we kind of addressed this last time. It wasn't really, a, it didn't come from a question, but yeah, so USF ended up hiring uh, Ernie Sims to an on-field coaching position, which obviously you're, you're going to take that if you're him. And that I think Bartow was was one of their one of their first choices after Sim. So I, I don't think that he was way down on their list, certainly. You can go back and listen to the previous show as far as what will comprise uh, Bartow's role with the team, but it's mainly just using his context to, 
to set up meetings, to introduce people, to to vouch for people, to tell tell people, hey, Coach Norvell is awesome. I've been a big fan of him, blah, 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 blah. Or, hey, like, let's make sure that we're calling the right person to make sure this kid uh, has transportation up to camp. Not in any sort of illegal way, obviously, legal only, but you know, like, let's make sure everybody knows the dates of the FSU camps and that they, that they are prioritizing getting up to Florida State over visiting other schools that might, might be hosting events on those weekends. You're hiring Bartow because he knows who to call. And that's a big deal. Final question of the night comes from Derek. Derek says, I recently became a listener of the Cover 3 podcast via uh, the, the now since uh, <laughs> since put on ice Barton and Bud uh, pod. And I'd encourage people to listen if they're looking for another great college football podcast. That is the Cover 3 uh, podcast. A great listen and uh, certainly it's only been made better by Bud's uh, appearance on it. Uh, with Vanderbilt hiring Barton this offseason, and Florida State recently hired Ryan Bartow. My question is, will more coaches look to hire national recruiting directors or similar positions to help with their recruiting operations in the future? What would your personal pros and cons be as a media member potentially looking to accept a position on a Power 5 staff? Wow. Uh, so I, I would say, okay, per, pros and cons. I, I've had discussions with, with some schools before about this nothing really formal, just, Hey, would you be interested? And the thing is, I, I would be interested, not, not in a, a director of high school relations job. I, I think first of all, I think Bartow is, is a strong hire for that spot. Um, but I, I would be interested if I could be the main guy and that's the issue, right? Can you, can you get a job that is the main guy at a P5 gig? Because then you're you're making, you know, pretty good money and being able to chase your dream. For me, going to take like the director of of recruiting at even a good G five job would be a pretty big step down in terms of salary. And I couldn't do some of the other stuff I do, like like my side hustles, like like the Nolcast. I I, I probably can't be an expert witness. I, I, there's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't be able to do. I'd be really fascinated to, to take on the challenge if it was the right spot. That's why I think Barton made so much sense at Vanderbilt because he has a head coach in Clark Lee who he grew up playing ball with. And like they're really good friends for a long time. It, it, it makes it makes so much sense to go that route. And I, I told Barton, it's like, you have to take this. Like there's no doubt. And and he's like, Yeah, no, there, there's there's a doubt in my mind. It, it's it's something I'm gonna take if 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 I get offered it. I'd be, yeah, I'd be interested, but it would have to be the right spot. And that's the thing is like, I'm 35. I'm, I'm pretty proud of where, you know, where I've worked myself to be. And yet I don't think that there's going to be a situation where, uh, like I can sell to my wife, Hey babe, I want to kind of restart what I'm doing career wise. And I'm going to go take a 70% pay cut and we're going to go move to some State's very borough. small town. Yeah, exactly. Like she'd be like, uh, honey, I just don't think that's really what we need to do. Let's let's focus on. But you'll love Southeast Georgia. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you, you know what I mean? It's just like like it's not. The thing is, if you're going to work your way up as a media guy to a spot where you'd actually be considered hireable, you need to make like the, the, the you're probably pretty entrenched as far as salary and and where you're at with your with your current company that you're not going to leave for just any job, right? Like you can't pay the mortgage just because you work in college football. 
So there, there's that element to it. There's other guys in the media who I could definitely see leaving who have very, very specific set of skills that might work really well. Um, and some of these jobs, by the way, make pretty good money. Like the head of recruiting at Mississippi State makes like 190, right? The head of recruiting at South Carolina makes like 220. That's, that's good money. I mean, obviously those guys have been doing it for a long time, uh, but the drop-off to other schools is pretty severe. I mean, like even your good G5s, they make like 75, which look is not bad, but that's also your, basically your, your main and only gig. You, you really can't like, I can't do null cast if I'm all of a sudden running USF's recruiting. Right. So yeah, I, I hope that's about as transparent as I can be with that. No, that's a good look at it. I mean, that's a, that's a good idea behind uh, both your personal perspective. And, uh, you know, I, I think you know, we talked a little bit about this on last week's pod as well. I, I think this is a trend that will only continue uh, to grow and will be interesting to see kind of how this is uh, woven into uh, the traditional recruiting frame and and how many schools uh, and what assets they have to kind of build up these uh uh, alternate positions that, you know, let them have a little bit better ideas to how to go about the process. Absolutely. All right, man. I, I've enjoyed this. All right. Yeah, no, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it as well, but it's been a good, uh, you know, listener, uh, listener question episode. I'm fortunate to have uh, the support that we have from our sponsors and our Patreons. And uh, just thank you guys. Give us the ability to do podcasts like this uh, consistently for, long time we've got a pretty good rhythm going here we're two to three in season and you know we try not to let more than six or seven days uh, go by in the off season without a podcast and uh, seems to be a pretty good formula for all parties involved so uh, until next week this has been the Nolcast. thank you again if you have a chance to leave a five-star review uh, know that it always means the world to us greatly appreciated and allows us to continue to grow the show this has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Knowles.